Welcome back to Ladies of LifeSite. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. I'm your host, Stella Moore, and today I am joined by Father Jeffrey Kirby. Father Kirby has written numerous books, and just recently, another one of his books titled Sanctify Them in Truth, How the Church's Social Doctrine Addresses the Issues of Our Time, was published. Today, Father Kirby is here to further discuss this book and current issues that he has written about. Father Kirby, thank you for joining Ladies of LifeSite today. It is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. Before we jump into it, would you mind leading us in prayer? Yes, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Say, Michael, the Archangel, defend us in battle. In our protection against the wickedness and the devil. And the devil. May God rebuke And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl throughout the world, keeping the word of souls. Amen. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Father Kirby, for those listening in that may not know you, would you mind telling us about your background and where you currently are pastor? Yes, I'm pastor of Our Lady of Grace Parish in Indian Land, South Carolina. We're actually uh, one of the one of our country's newest parishes. We're only about six years old as a parish, and I was uh, blessed to be with the community from the beginning of its status as a parish, so it's been great to be here. Also, I'm a trained moral theologian with a doctorate in moral theology from Holy Cross University in Rome, and have published in moral theology and different issues and topics, and also I serve as a papal missionary of mercy, so I I'm able to go and, and give homilies or give uh, retreats or, or, or talks, workshops on the subject of mercy and the relationship between justice and mercy, truth and mercy, uh, very important things. So, so I get to do a little bit of everything, but of course, my main job, my heart is being a pastor here at Our Lady of Grace in Indian Land. Wow. Well, thank you for coming here today. You have a ton of education and understanding of what is happening in our modern day culture. So thank you, seriously. Moving on to your book, can you elaborate on what it's all about? Maybe the topics you've covered, what's inspired you, that sort of thing. I, I know you covered this in the introduction chapter, but for people listening in that may not have read your book yet, give us a little bit of context. Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, ask the obvious question at first, you know, maybe they are not familiar with the term social doctrine. So what is, what is the church's social doctrine? What, what does that mean? They, you know, they might say, I know doctrine, but what does it mean social doctrine and so on? And, and the social doctrine is the application of the dogmatic and doctrinal teachings of the church to the social order, to society, to our life in the midst of the world. So it's the application of the teachings of the church to society to live life. So that's a social doctrine. And, and it's important for Catholics to understand that there, there are answers given by the church in terms of the things we have to address. So all the things we encounter in the world. So the laity might encounter at work or among their friends or with their neighbors, like these different topics in our society, that the church provides guidance. The church applies, interprets the teachings of Christ, the teachings of our, our theological tradition to real issues, practical issues in the midst of the world. So, so that's the, the impetus behind the book, just to kind of bring these answers to the forefront. And, and what inspired the book actually were a lot of lay people reaching out, a lot of my parishioners and, and, and other uh, concerned Catholics who reached out to me and said, Father, could you please just address some of these issues because we're getting nothing and, and we're, we're sinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we need some help. So, so actually that book started as a homily series. I just did a whole series of homilies, oh. on different social issues. And then there was such a response that it eventually became a program of Christian formation for adults. 
So can you imagine having some three to 400 Catholic adults come every week for Christian formation? And that was happening every week for about two months. People were coming. Wow. They wanted to find out more. Could you develop this? Because obviously if I have a class, I can develop things more systematically than I could in a homily. And the response was just so overwhelming that eventually I reached out to St. Benedict Press with the TAM books and said, would there be an interest in this becoming a book so that other Catholics might benefit from it? And they said, absolutely, <laughs> we, 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 we wanna jump on this. So I mentioned this because when people read the book, they're getting the social doctrine of the church, but it's not stuffy, removed abstract because it came from the trenches, Catholics who are trying to live the faith in the midst of the world, dealing with the fallenness of the world, dealing with the agendas of the world, so people who've read the book have said, wow, I'm reading it and then I have a question. And then the next paragraph, you're answering the question. And then the next page, you're, you're answering another question. And, so, and I said, well, that happened because it came from real people, right? So, you know, you can imagine it was a homily series, people responded, but what, do you, what did you mean by that? Or could you clarify this point? And then in adult formation, they were able to ask questions. So it developed the text even more. So that by the time it got to be a book, this is something that's kind of been beaten up developed and reformed in the midst of the trenches so that now it can really help people. They can say, I can read this, it's easy to read, it's digestible, it answers my questions, it helps me. So anyway, that's the whole story of this book. I'm excited about it. And, and I will say already, the publisher's getting some really high praises in terms of people who are reading it and saying, this, this is exactly what we need right now. Yes, I will say, I, I read it and I was shocked. It, like you're saying, it's easy to read, but it touches on so many important topics. So anyone listening, I, I really do urge people to read this book. It's really, really good. Um, like I said, I just read it recently and there's eight chapters and each one discusses a different issue. You really address some hard hitting topics. I mean, every time I opened this book, it, it woke me up. Um, I'd really like for us to talk a bit more about the LGBTQ plus movement and that chapter. You talk about the divide between LGBTQ plus people and their supporters and the ones that don't stand with that movement. So I would like to begin with this. How do we combat this divide and the strong difference in views? Yes. Yeah. So, so first, uh, I'm, I'm glad we're actually highlighting that chapter. I would say of all the inquiries that I received, the majority related to aspects of how do we respond, hold the line in terms of the LGBTQ plus movement and so on. And it's the largest chapter in the book because it raises the most questions. So I wanted to make sure that, we, you know, from the church's social doctrine, that answers were provided and, and, and you know, explanations for those answers as well. So, so I would say, how do we hold the line? I think that the biggest task for us as Christians is to realize that in no way can we normalize or participate in any action that normalizes these type of activities. So for example, the month of June, which is actually the month of the sacred heart of our Lord, the month of love, we are now told, no, that's LGBTQ plus month, right? So they have the processions and the rallies and the events and so on. And oftentimes Catholics will say, well, I need to go there. No, we don't. We don't participate in anything that normalizes an offense to marriage, to sexuality, to authentic love. We cannot. And there's this pressure from our society to just play along. Just go along with it, right? So I compare it sometimes to the early church. In the early church, our forebears, they would not participate in the public games. They wouldn't go to the, you know, the arena. They wouldn't go to the gladiatorial combats and so on because as Christians, they understood the dignity of human life. 
and they wouldn't go and participate or be accomplices to such violence. And so they absented themselves. Because of that, they were considered enemies of the state because people were defined by their involvement in public life. So suddenly the Christians said, we're not gonna participate in this. We're just gonna be over here. And oftentimes they would be singled out because of that. Well, that's a powerful witness to us. And I think in a secular age, the battle is still there. The challenge is still there. That we have to say, wait a minute, we know how we're called to live. We know what sexuality is, what marriage is. We know what human dignity is. We know what love is. We've been told this, God became a man in order to show us. So we have to hold that tradition of our forebears and say, we're not gonna participate in this. And, and as people are listening to this, it can get brutal. Like, you know, parties at the workplace to celebrate the gay marriage, supposed gay marriage of, of a coworker. Well, you know, they don't have those parties for heterosexual coworkers who are getting married. And there's this pressure that you have to go or, or you have to put a rainbow in your workstation, right? And so on. And if you don't do this, you are singled out, right? Because what's your problem? Why do you hate gay people? Why don't you believe in equality? And because of this chapter, I, I want these questions, I want to provide in this chapter the answers so we can begin to answer these questions because let's assume they're being sincere. <laughs> now, most of the time they're not. But, but let's just assume there's some sincerity in the questions. We want to make sure we try to have the answers so that, as St. Paul tells us, we can speak the truth in love. So I, I hope that, you know, by giving some answers that we can hold that line and say, look, we're going to be called terrible names. We're going to be judged. Uh, we're going to be, you know, just dismissed and so on. We can be the best, the most compassionate and the most kind. But if we don't play along with the secular world, it desires to crush us and denounce us and call us terrible names. And as Christians, we should be ready for that. Because look at the tradition of our forebears. Like we will follow the way of love, we'll follow the way of human dignity, we follow the way of the Lord. Yeah. Um, you touch on in the chapter how we are called to be people of love. And then you also touched on the comparison that oftentimes those of us who don't support the LGBT movement we're considered homophobic by people who identify as LGBT or support it. But in reality, those people are called to love just as we are called to love them. Because at the end of the day, as Christian people, we have to understand that every human is a child of God. So you said something in the book about how we are called to see humanity in people before we see their fallen fallenness. And I mean, that really resonated with me. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we have to claim the, the fullness of, of, of our faith in that when we're called these names, so you don't support gay marriage, you don't support this gay couple, therefore you're homophobic. So wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a Christian, right? I believe in human dignity. I don't hate anyone, right? You know? So right. first, let's clarify that. So, and of course, sometimes it's difficult because this is a social movement that just emphasizes tolerance. But then as soon as you disagree, they can become very intolerant. You know, and very themselves become bullies. It's like, well, wait a minute. So you're trying to call me these names and denounce me because I disagree with you. H have I ever offended you or, or threatened you? Have I made you feel unsafe? And so on. Well, no, 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 no. Then, then really at the end of the day, we just have two different opinions in our society. Now, ours, of course, is more than an opinion, but in this context, so why can't you show me that tolerance and try to understand where I'm coming from as I show you the love that God has for you, as I respect your human dignity as a Christian. 
So I think sometimes, again, we have to know our language and we have to be able to present ourselves, not get defensive, not get upset, try not to get hurt, right? And, and try to speak the truth in love. Now, in that chapter, I tell the story where um, I was invited to an event in my home city and, and I went, I went in my Roman college, a Catholic priest, and the event had a buffet afterwards. And so everybody's there at the buffet and I'm, I'm, I'm going to the buffet and I'm, I have my plate to get some food and so on. And, and, and these two women that because of the level of affection that they had displayed to one another, uh, I assumed that, um, that they were lesbians, you know? And so of course they see my Roman collar and they immediately, you know, just beeline it uh, right to me, you know, as I'm standing there at this buffet and they right up, you know, come right up to me and say, you think we're wrong, you think we're wrong. And I said, I do, right? And they're, oh, you know. And I said, I do think you're wrong. And I pointed to their plate and I said, there's better food on this buffet. <laughs> you did not choose well, you know? <laughs> so, so in spite of themselves, they had to laugh, right? Because they were like, oh, God, you know? And like, no, you think we're wrong. Like, what do you see when you see us? That's a great question. I said, I'll tell you what I see. The first thing I see are two children of God who want to love and be loved who want companionship through the joys and the sufferings of life. That's the first thing I see. Well, they were just shocked. Like, what, you know? And like, but you think we're wrong. I said, well, the way you express your friendship sexually, yes, we disagree. I said, but the desire for love and companionship, I very much understand that as a Christian. Well, they were completely disarmed. And we ended up, the three of us, sitting at the same table, having a grand old time. It was like the Catholic priest and the two lesbians, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what a sight. <laughs> And, and, and I just tell that story in the book because we can we, we can speak the truth in love. Like we don't have to be jerks. And if we give the fullness of our message, because we are people of authentic love, people of human dignity, we respect one another, like we try to show kindness to others and so on. And we live that full message. We can disarm people and oftentimes find a greater hearing and a greater listening from people in terms of our differences. Yeah, thank you. That, that, I remember reading that story. It was great. It, was, it really it was just eye-opening. Um, so thank you. Um, moving on, in this chapter, you distinguish between homosexual orientation and homosexual acts. Personally, I thought it was, the way you describe it was very, very good. It was easy to understand. So could you tell us the difference between homosexual orientation and acts? Yes. So, and this distinction is very important, especially if there's anyone listening who might be struggling with same-sex attractions and so on. So homosexual orientation is, uh, we live in a fallen world. There are fallen things that happen. Uh, we know that there's all kinds of disorders in our soul. You know, I, I, I love during Lent, one of the prefaces of the mass speaks about our disordered attraction to the things of this world. So the church acknowledges that there's all kinds of disorders. Someone could be born with fetal alcohol syndrome, or they can be born with diabetes and so on. Like it's a fallen world, creation is fallen. And sometimes our affections can be fallen. So we can have a disordered affection. So someone, so a person can have that disordered affection. They can have a homosexual attraction. Uh, so that's a, a sexual desire for someone of their, of their same gender. And, and they can have that. And, and simply because they feel that way doesn't mean it's okay. Well, if I feel this, it must be, it must be right. No, no, I would never tell a diabetic, go eat all the cake you want because that's what you feel, right? I wouldn't tell someone with fetal alcohol syndrome, sure, go, go and drink a six pack. You know, I would never say that. It would be the complete lack of charity. So if someone says, oh, I have this attraction and so on. So, okay, well, now you recognize that. And now the task is to order your life in order to address that. So the diabetic has to change the way to eat. 
the person who has an inclination to stealing, you know, like they have to order that and so on, you know. So the person who has this homosexual orientation, they have to orient and direct their life now in order to address, okay, this is a disorder affection. This is a fallenness in my own heart. And then now they have to begin to direct their lives accordingly. So that can actually become a means to holiness. In fact, the theologian Janet Smith says that she thinks that there are a lot of canonized saints who might have had homosexual orientations. And they directed that to a greater love for the gospel, a greater drive to show love for their neighbor. So again, they, they allowed the grace of God to, to order what was fallen in their own personhood, right? So powerful, that's the path to holiness. That's very different than a homosexual act. The homosexual act is the actual engagement in a homosexual uh, action, some type of activity uh, with a sexual act with someone of the same gender. Uh, that is um, severe. And, and I think sometimes in the church today, we don't emphasize that enough because we want to try to look compassionate and kind. Uh, but remember, kindness is speaking the truth, right? So in that story with, with the lesbians at, at, at the reception, I, I never did not tell the truth. I spoke the truth. I, I, I answered their questions. I would never betray my conscience or the truth. So kindness is speaking the truth. Well, I think what happens is sometimes we're trying to be so compassionate that we forget to emphasize the severity of the sinfulness of homosexual acts. For example, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us there are four sins that cries to heaven for vengeance. So this is like mortal sin supersized, right? And there's only four of them. And one of them is homosexual activity because not simply does it offend God, but it offends the natural order. It violates the very, the, our nature, right? So it, it, it's, it's above and beyond even just fornication or adultery, which are serious and grave sins, but at least those are within the natural order between a man and a woman. A homosexual act doesn't simply, is not simply an act against purity, a violation of purity you know, or chastity, but an offense to nature itself and to God. So again, it's one of those sins that cries to heaven for vengeance. And I tell people sometimes in pastoral counseling when they say they have this orientation and I get so much pressure from friends, they say I should just act on this and on and on, it's like, don't. This is an utter violation to God as your creator. Like this is very serious. Like it, it, it's very hard to get back when you start following that path, right? And, and let me just say with this, in terms of the LGBTQ plus movement, you know what's shocking? This is a movement that talks about tolerance. But if you have someone with homosexual orientation and they say they're not going to be sexually active, they are attacked. They are attacked, yeah. right? Yeah. Out. They're not allowed to be there. No, 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 no. It's like, wait a minute. I thought this was tolerance, right? But no, no, there's only one way to do something if you're going to follow the LGBTQ plus movement. So there's no place for the, for the person who has the same sex attraction but says, I'm not going to act on it. I'll tell you also, a lot of times people with homosexual attractions will come to the Catholic church because in some of the evangelical communities, you're either getting married or you're out. There's no acknowledgement of this homosexual attraction can be a means to holiness, that there's a place in the life of the church for you. A lot of times the evangelical communities, no. You're 25, you're 30, you're not married yet, there's something wrong with you. You, you get married, you get out, right? So there's no middle understanding in terms of a homosexual orientation. But in the Catholic church, we say, look, it's a fallen world, these things happen. And this is a way in which God can work out your salvation through you, through this fallenness, if you're willing to follow the way of the cross, to follow the way of love. So there's a lot that, as, we could, as we're talking, you see there's a lot to unpack, in large part, first of all, what we teach, and then how can we respond 
to the claims and the actions of the LGBTQ plus movement. Yeah, I, <clears throat> sorry. The whole, like when you were talking about homosexual orientation, how you said it's not sinful per se, but when you have homosexual acts, that's where, and you said, I quote, hedonistic, self-focused, and narcissistic. I mean, and then you also went on and you talked about how these are sins that cry to heaven. I mean, that really, really resonates with readers. Yes, yes. And, and, and I'll say this, that the person who has a homosexual orientation, it's, it's not sinful. They bear no guilt unless they nurture it. Right. And I was one as, as we talk, I want to just clarify that, clarify that point, because if the person has the orientation, but you know, they're engaging in pornography or they're engaging in chat rooms or they're nurturing this in their heart, then they bear guilt for that. But the orientation itself, like, no, if they say, I have this fallenness, but I, I, I love the Lord. I, I want to obey him. I, I want the grace of God to work within me. It can become a means to holiness. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Father, on a different note. How are we called to interact with people who are transgender and struggling with gender dysphoria? I mean, that's a little bit more, um, you have to handle that a different way for sure. So, Oh my goodness, yes. I'll tell you, um, right when we felt like we were kind of getting the pastoral response to, you know, homosexual people kind of, you know, established a little bit better, um, here comes the transgender movement. And, and and, and I'll tell you, someone asked me, they said, as a moral theologian, what do you think the greatest moral issue is? And I said, transgenderism. Because in this one movement of transgenderism, we have all kinds of things being challenged. Gender, love, sexuality, human dignity, marriage. It, it's all of it combined into this one movement. You know, And, and it is harder to interact because do, do I use the pronouns they tell me to? Do, do, do I go in public when they're dressed as this other gender that they were not naturally born to, uh, it can become a lot harder immediately. I would say that our task as Christians is to respond to everyone, acknowledging their human dignity, to respond to them with kindness and love. But love again respects truth. You know, so if someone says, well, I want to come to Thanksgiving dinner, but I'm, come, I'm going to come dressed in, this, in my transition to gender, right? This language, right? Uh, I'm going to come to Thanksgiving dinner say no. You're always welcome at Thanksgiving dinner. You're always welcome as your family, but we cannot allow, our love cannot turn a blind eye. Our love cannot be based on a lie. So you're welcome to come, but you have to come dressed as God has given you this gender, as you have been born, right? So we have to use these pronouns. No, no, I, I have a freedom of speech. I speak truth. I, I can't play these games, you know, so I, I can't use these, these genders, these pronouns that do not belong to your birth gender, I can't do that, right? This becomes a harder place because at least like, you know, with, with the you know, homosexual community, there's, there's more room to, to facilitate and to kind of interact and, 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 you know, it's easier to find, you know, shared bridges that we can talk uh, through and, and, and have these bridges in which we can communicate. In the transgender movement, it's, it's, it's just 10 times harder because they want us to acknowledge a lie and, can't do that, you know, and, and I don't think we, we interact, I don't think we should speak harshly, I don't think we should you know, use a judgmental tone, uh, we should affirm, you know, you're always welcome at Thanksgiving, remember this family, we love you, but we, we can't, our love cannot turn a blind eye, and we, we cannot accept a lie, so it is a lot harder immediately, but I, I want to encourage Christians to remain steadfast, because, uh, you know, the people who are in the transgender movement, 
um, oftentimes are very hurt, very confused. It is a mental, emotional illness, right? So there was once a time in our society would recognize that. I think the thing that is not acknowledged is the high suicide rate, even among those who've transitioned. And of course, what do they say? Well, it's because they're not accepted by society. That's why they're still so depressed. And it's like, no, no, there is a mental struggle going on, an emotional struggle in terms of their own identity that has to be acknowledged. And we love them. We want them to get help. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. We're not going to comply with lies. Again, I wouldn't tell a diabetic, if you feel like eating cake, eat all the cake you want. And I'm not going to tell a transgender person, you should just follow this, you know, this disorder, this fallenness in your heart. We cannot comply. We cannot normalize what is against what God and nature have given to us. Yeah, I, I'll say I just graduated a few weeks ago. And at graduation, you know, you have a student speaker come up and give the speech and the student speaker came up and right away you could tell that something was off. And so the person starts speaking and eventually it comes to, I'm a girl now, this is my coming out thing. You know, to saying to the whole class, I'm transgender. And at first I'm, you know, it hurts my soul. I'm like, should I leave? Should I walk out? You know, I, I don't want to hear this. But as I continue to listen, you know, this um, male who's identifying as a female now started to tell its life stories and all of the hurt and pain that the family was undergoing. And I was like, wow, like, it's just so sad. Like you're saying, these people who are so confused and they're having gender dysphoria, they really... Uh, there's more to it than just they want to be a girl or they want to be a guy. There, there's a lot more to it to unpack, and it's it's really unfortunate. Yes, yes. There's there's a to your point. There's a lot of brokenness and fallenness in our world, and as you're indicating, uh, I, I have not interacted with any trans transgender person who does not have a narrative of brokenness and hurt in their life in one form or another or, or in multiple ways. Uh, and, and you know, if I could just run with the example you gave, like with the commencement address. Um, you know, when we talk about narcissism, uh, you know, uh, this can be seen as a moral judgment. Um, I would say more specifically, when we talk about narcissism, we're speaking really about, you know, uh, an emotional challenge, right? Because people think they're the center of the world. So for example, in this case, like, you know, to go up and then to use this opportunity at a commencement to make it all about themselves, right? Like this becomes an expression of narcissism that sometimes isn't even identified. Like, well, your task was to come and to encourage the graduates and to speak on their behalf. Right? This was a social, a, a communal responsibility that has now become radically personalized in a narcissistic way. It's all about them. It's all about their story. But wait a minute, what about the stories of all the other graduates? Right? So we talk about the LGBTQ movement as, as this kind of narcissistic movement. This is one example of how did this person think that this speech for an entire class should become all about them. Yep, yep, it's unfortunate. And the, I mean, the worst part is the encouragement behind it. I mean, this person is giving the speech and everyone is clapping and cheering and so happy, you know, we're so happy that you decided you want to be a girl. And there is so much brokenness and people are cheering it on. It's, it's un really sad, actually, yeah. It would be the equivalent of people cheering on the diabetic who is indulging in a huge cake and has that immediate flare of, you know, sugar uh, right before they completely crash. Right, know? right, yeah. Of course, we would say that anyone who would applaud that, that they were in gross violation of charity to allow that and to cheer that on. Like, the person may have wanted it, desired it, 
but it was not good for them. Right? It, it was not healthy. Right? So, yeah, we, we have a lot of work to do as Christians. <laughs> right. Yeah, we do. I, I wanted to get your, uh, as we're talking about it, what can we do to stop the normalization of the LGBTQ movement and move away from it altogether? It's one thing to understand the movement and how morally wrong it is. But in the world we live in today, you really can't not even, you can't say you disagree with the principles of this movement because otherwise you're homophobic. So how can we stop this normalization? Yeah, so these, these claims, you know, of, 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 again, this kind of bullying um, and, and intolerance that we find as Christians, I, I think that the, the response is that we answer, we speak the truth in love. We also stand up for ourselves. So for example, the person who's told you have to have a rainbow flag in your workstation because every workstation of this company is going to have a rainbow flag well i would encourage a catholic to find a good attorney and say i challenge that right like that violates my conscience and and if i have to put up that flag can i put up a cross like can, can right I, yeah it's important to, to me right so i think that we can become you know engage the society in, in in a healthy respectful way but kind of begin to stand up for ourselves. Like we, we are citizens of a democratic republic. We have rights, just as our fellow citizens do. And I think sometimes, we, if we're not careful, we, we let ourselves become victims or we let ourselves be dismissed. I think we have to kind of begin to answer and give you know, answers to, to the questions that are asked. You know, that, that's why I, I wrote this book, to try to help and you know, strengthen uh, the baptized, the, the Christian believer, to, to give answers. But it also begin to take counteraction. Right. So someone says, oh, OK, well, we're going to have this party during lunch to celebrate, you know, this uh, supposed marriage between two men. I say, well, I challenge that. We didn't celebrate when Sally down the hall got married to her husband last year. Right. So um, I, I begin to go to HR and say, there's some favoritism here. Like, you know, this, this makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so where, where's the equality? So I, I, I would encourage Christians to arm themselves with, with truth and power, and, and then begin to engage in, in, in a good way, right? You know, again, we don't have to be jerks or contentious, but begin to kind of stand up for ourselves and for truth. And, and I think this is true in, in, in children's sports programs. This is true in homeowners associations. This is true among uh, you know, uh, groups of interest groups or, or, or civic organizations. Sometimes as Christians, I think we're so shocked that this suddenly has found its way you know, into a part of our life that we're, we're kind of just almost in a, in a sense, we're just put on pause. We just, we're numb. And, and I think that, you know, it's understandable because who would have ever thought that we'd have to talk about these things. But then I think, okay, now like, you know, get some good formation, have the answers ready, and then begin to engage and stand up for what is true, good, and noble and beautiful. Yeah. As Christian people, I mean, like you're saying, people are shocked that we have to comprehend this and just be okay with it. So it's really easy to fall into that trap of just letting it happen and, you know, being okay with it and watching your workplace celebrate this gay couple and not doing anything about it. And that's where we have to really step in and take action as Christian people. Yes, in fact, our, our social doctrine actually calls us to Good Samaritan principle. So we are called to be Good Samaritans. So if our neighbor needs help, we provide help. If our neighbor needs truth, we speak truth. So it's a good Samaritan principle. We have no ax to grind. We seek no judgment upon anyone. We speak truth in order for all to have the abundant life given to us in Jesus Christ, to have the abundance of life that's given by truth, by living in the tranquility of order, right? to know what is right, what is not, and to live according to that so we can have peace. For sure. Yeah. Father Kirby, I have one last question for you. 
I was listening to one of your recent homilies on YouTube, and you weren't talking about the LGBTQ plus movement, but you were talking about Vatican II and this culture of compromise, as you say. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that Vatican II has played a large part in the rise of the LGBTQ plus movement? So I have to tell you, I love Vatican II. I, I definitely, I mean, it's the, the 21st Ecumenical Council, so we can say it's the 21st Council for the 21st century. But I would say the authentic Vatican Council. So you go to the 16 documents and you read what the Council Fathers called for. You read the opening homily of you know, good Pope John, uh, St. Uh, John the 23rd, and, and you get to know the real Vatican II. When I was in the seminary, I said, I, I need to understand the real Vatican II. And I made a real effort. I read the council documents. I read the day books. I read every summary or book I could, good or bad, on the council. I thought, I need to understand this, right? And, and I love Vatican II. It's a rallying cry for discipleship. It's a rallying cry for us to understand our faith, to speak the truth in the midst of society, to empower the baptized, to be salt, light, and leaven. So I love Vatican II. I think regrettably what happened is Vatican II and its implementation was usurped, especially here in the United States. So I think the Kennedy administration, everybody was excited about Catholicism because a Catholic had finally been elected president, right? So everyone was interested in the Catholic Church at the same time the Vatican II was being called. So suddenly there's this, this, this array and, and, and flurry of media interest in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and so we had to make it exciting. And so we politicized things. And, doctrinal differences were put in political terms and so on. And, and, and of course, oftentimes in, in a society, if we're not careful, liberalism wins. It's, it's seen as more exciting or dramatic and so on. And, and a large part of Vatican II was usurped by bad leadership and in large part to lady were lied to. They were told this is what Vatican II is. Uh, sometimes what I like to do is sit down with members of my parish and say, what do you think Vatican II told us? And they list all the things. And then I say, okay, well, Vatican II didn't talk about any of those, right? And <laughs> right. let me tell you what Vatican II did, that did say. And, and I go through living the baptismal way of life, dying to yourself and living for Christ, learning your faith so that you can share it with others and so on. And point by point by point, like, I, I didn't know Vatican II said that, right? So I think Vatican II could actually be an answer to some of these uh, ideologies in our world today. I think the way Vatican II was presented and implemented, I think it really hurt the church. And, and certainly weakened her to such a point where these ideologies have found their way in the hearts of many Christians. Like, I mean, we look at the Pew Research, Catholics are the largest supporters of abortion, largest supporters of marriage. Like the Pew Research is shocking, right? And large parts because Vatican II rallied us to share the faith, to teach the faith, to be good disciples. And, and that mantle was never fully faithfully picked up. I, I sometimes joke, I said, there was one bishop who really took Vatican II seriously. He went back to his home diocese. He created a whole program to teach and implement Vatican II. His efforts were put together in a book called Sources of Renewal. You can still get the copy of it. And that bishop, of course, was Karol Wojtyla of Krakow, Poland. And the Holy Spirit probably looked and said, oh, well, there's one bishop taking this seriously, so I have to make him pope, right? And of course, he becomes Pope St. John Paul II, right? So, so there's an example of what Vatican II really asked for. And, and of course, Pope St. John Paul II goes on to, to implement and interpret and correct, you know, uh, to teach the Vatican Council and correct bad, bad in interpretations and, and applications of Vatican II. So I think we have about another hundred years as a church before we really get Vatican II right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. 
for those listening in, the LGBTQ plus movement is only one of the eight chapters in Father Kirby's new book titled Sanctify Them in Truth. I urge everyone to read this book and learn more about the church's teachings for other pressing issues such as immigration, critical race theory, abortion, and more. Father Kirby, thank you for joining us on Ladies of LifeSite. It has been a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you one-on-one. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Ladies of LifeSite. I'm your host, Stella Moore. For questions or comments, please email ladiesoflifesite at ladies at lifesitenews.com. We would love to hear from you. I hope you have a wonderful week. 